If you brought your uh, scriptures today, your Bibles, and I, and I hope you did, go ahead and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you would. 1 Samuel chapter 25. We've been working through a series that we've called Today's Surrender is Tomorrow's Freedom. We've been looking at the reality that sometimes in our life, uh, as Christians, and, and certainly as, as perhaps those who aren't yet Christians, there's area in our lives where we just hold on to. We just, we just clench our fingers around them. We white-knuckle them. We refuse to let them go. And so we've been looking at stories of characters through Scripture who, who came to a crossroads where they realized, I can continue to hold this and squeeze it and get what I want, what I think I want, or I can surrender it. And I can do what God's calling me to do in this moment and experience the blessings he has for me. Uh, a couple weeks ago, when I started the sermon, I told you a story about an epic game of Monopoly that happened at, at a Smith Dumb earlier this year. Um, I, need to, I need to come back to that. Uh, it's come to my attention that perhaps I wasn't completely transparent with the details of that game. Um, you'll recall I smeared my daughters. They thought they could beat me, and I just beat the living you know, Monopoly money out of them. Um, in this game and was crowned once again champion, never been beat in my own home. I don't want you to miss these details. Um, but Amy and Anna have pushed back a little bit and they said, listen, Dad, you said the reason we wanted to play the electronic edition is because it would give us an advantage, but that's not really the case, Dad. The reason we wanted to play the electronic edition and not the original edition is because when we play the original edition, there's some things you do that give you an advantage that we don't really like. We just wanted to be on level playing ground. We, we, we didn't want to start behind. Now, I, some of you are Monopoly players, and you're going, what does he do that would give him an advantage? Well, let me, I just promise you, it's nothing against the rules. Matter of fact, the girls, if they were to be honest, would concede. I don't break the rules. There's just some strategies I use that they're not expressly forbidden by the rules. Let's just put it that way, okay? They're not outside of the rules. They don't break the rules, but, but you know, maybe they're not expressly stated that you can do these things. So um, that's the truth. I, I, had, I had to get that out. I wanted to be a pastor of transparency and honesty. Um, uh, it's an interesting thing, though, about rules. You've got your rules, and we've got rules in every part of life, and they're good. We would all generally agree on that. And then you've got your um, what you might call your shadow rules. So, so you've got a rule, and then you've kind of got the dark, shady thing behind it. And some of you are looking a little confused. So let me illustrate with a rule that we all know. We call it, everybody, everywhere, I think, calls it the golden rule. What is the golden rule? Yeah, we all know it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So um, the golden rule, you know, like every civilization since time began has had this golden rule. Of course, Jesus put it in the form that we say it. We read that in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but the idea behind the golden rule is um, you go to work every day and you compliment your boss or your supervisor, for example, because you really want them to do the same thing for you. You're gracious and kind and you say nice things because that's how you want to be treated by other people. So you do those things. Golden rule, right? We all get that. So like the shadow side of the golden rule might be what uh, we'll call for today the pyrite rule. Pyrite is the term for fool's gold. Um, so it's, the, it's kind of the, the, the dark side of the, the golden rule. And, and the, the pyrite rule goes like this. Do unto others as they have done unto you. So this is like when um, your boss looked at you crossly the other day. So today you're going to, 
you're going to complain about your boss to your coworkers. Okay, that's kind of like the the shadow side of the golden rule, the pyrite rule. They hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them. It's it's all about getting even, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You hurt me, I hurt you, and 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 then we're then we're even. The the challenge with the pyrite rule is that sometimes you can't get even with the person who hurt you. Sometimes, for various reasons, there's just no opportunity to get back at them. And so then a lot of times we tend to slip into what we'll call the pyrite rule, pay it forward edition. So um, that simply says, do unto others as somebody else has done unto you. So this is where the boss yelled at you at work today, and so you come home and kick the dog, okay? The dog didn't do anything to you, but the boss did, so you're going to pay it forward to the dog and, and take your, your frustration out on the dog. You're going to get even with someone else, for, you know, with person C for what person A did to you. Are you with me? It's the, the, this whole shadow side of the golden rule comes down to getting even. I'm either going to get even with you for hurting me or I'm going to get even with you because they hurt me. Which really is kind of, a, kind of a silly trap to get caught in. The problem with getting even is that you're even. And why in the world would, would any of us want to be even with someone who's hurt us? Why would we want to be on the same par with someone we don't even like? Why would we want to be even with someone who we think we're better than? I mean, seriously, have you ever considered this idea? Why would we want to be even with someone who goes around hurting people? So today, as we look at, this, uh, look at a, a story from David's life, one that we don't tell very often, we're going to see that there's a better impulse than this desire to get even. And that's the impulse to get ahead. But instead of doing what it would take to, uh, to take revenge, to get, an, to get an eye for an eye or to be even, that, that there's a way that God has designed that allows us to actually move not to even, but ahead. So 1 Samuel 25 is where we're at today. This story takes place uh, roughly um, 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years B.C., before Jesus Christ showed up in the picture. Um, and, uh, and you probably are familiar with his character, David. He's kind of larger than life. When we first meet David, he's being anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Of course, at this time, Saul, the first king of Israel, is still on the throne. But God has said to Samuel, um, anoint the next king. And so Samuel anoints David. And uh, within a couple years of that happening, um, David has grown to great fame, uh, so great that the, the current, the reigning king, Saul, is jealous of him. So David is fleeing from Saul, skirting Saul and his men through the wilderness, hiding in caves and wherever he can hide, doing whatever he can so that Saul won't kill him. And that's where we pick up. It's kind of in the middle of this this season in David's life where he's trying to, to run for his life from King Saul. We're going to start at verse 1. Um, you can follow along on the screen or in your text as we, uh, we read today's account. First Samuel, chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel, remember this is the guy who had anointed David to be king. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. 
and they buried him at its home in Ramah. Then David moved down to the desert of Paran. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the desert of Paran, but it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's, it's a desert. It's the area between the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, you can maybe picture this kind of north, uh, northeast of Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula, very uh, rich and green and full of life. It's between there and Palestine or, or Israel where David's people lived. And it's just this basically a barren place. It's, that's why it's called a desert. Uh, although, like all deserts in the, the Mideast, there are pockets of green where it's lush, and especially in the valleys where they, uh, they get more rainfall and such, there, there are places of, of great growth and, and, uh, and fertility. Verse 2, a certain man in Maon who owned property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep. And if you all were uh, nomadic farmers, you'd be going, whoa, this guy's filthy rich. That many animals? That's like if I were to say, there was a millionaire who lived there, and a billionaire who lived in their town, and they had a nice palatial mansion in town, and, and they owned a, a home in Hawaii. I mean, this guy's rolling deep is, is what we're seeing here. Um, he had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, um, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal. Uh, we usually say Nabal, but the connect, correct pronunciation would be Nabal. So if I say it wrong, just correct me as we go. Uh, his name, as we're going to see through the story, means fool or foolish. And this is exactly what he was, and, and we'll see that unfold. And Nabal, his wife's name was Abigail. And Hebrew names mean something. They connect to the person's character. And Abigail's name means uh, my father's joy. She's an incredible person, and again, we're going to see more about her. She was intelligent and beautiful, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Okay, so let's real quick review. We've got three characters. The first one mentioned was Nabal. Yep, well, maybe David was the first one mentioned, but we'll go with Nabal because someone said it right and I heard it, so that was good. So Nabal, his name means fool, and he's a surly and mean, filthy rich character. Uh, He's got a wife. Her name is Abigail. She's beautiful and intelligent, the text says. Her name means my father's joy. And then we've got um, what we would typically call the main character, although it's going to be an interesting turn in this story. And his name is... David, and what do we know about David? Yes, everything you said I'm sure is true. Um, he's anointed to be king. He's the king in waiting, fleeing from, fleeing from, you know, from Saul uh, so that he can stay alive to take the throne when, when God says it's time. Now, interestingly, Nabal was a Calebite. That means he was from the tribe of Caleb, and so was David. So David and Nabal are kinfolk. They, at the family reunions that they'd have you know, down at the state park every year, these two would have seen each other. Okay, so, so they're not like total, they're not unknown to each other. They're, they're aware of who each other are. They're from the same family. Verse four. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Okay, again, um, to us doesn't mean a whole lot, but in agrarian culture, uh, you would understand that sheep shearing time is a time of celebration. Uh, it's kind of like, if you will, the, the annual dividend paycheck. Now the farmers find out how much they're really worth. What can they cash in on? The, so, so it was a time of celebration, and because 
because the cash was flowing more freely, it was typically known as a time of generosity. It's a time when you would make good on any outstanding debts or that you would bless someone who you, you wish to bless financially or with material goods. Verse 5, so David sent 10 young men and said to them, this is Nabal's men who are shearing the sheep. Well, that's where they're going. David says to his men, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, David says, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son, David, whatever you can find for them. So David sends his men to Nabal to say, hey, listen, man. I mean, you know, we're not like the Israeli mafia or anything, but we basically protected your men while, while they were in our area. Not only did we protect, you know, we didn't steal from them. We didn't borrow from them. We didn't take anything that wasn't ours. And we made sure that no one else did. So would you, would you please repay us for our kindness? Would you please offer us a, a gift to say thank you for our protection. Please be good to us. Hey, after all, we're your kinfolk. Verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. And then notice in verse 11, I'm going to ask you to, to circle or underline a few things in your text. Um, verse 11, why should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and shall I give it to men coming from I do not know where? So Nabal's basic response to David's request for gratitude and generosity is, I don't even know this guy. I don't know where he's coming from. This David is a rogue. He's an outlaw. I don't want anything to do with him. I owe you nothing, David. Okay, just a, just a few quick notes on, on what's happening here. First of all, Nabal has every right to refuse to pay David for his protection. It's kind of customary in their culture uh, that, that you would offer payment to, to those who have protected your flocks and your men, but it's not required. And so he's well within his rights to do this, but really given the culture they live in, you just don't do this. You just don't do it. Men, it's kind of like walking into a public restroom and there's four open urinals and one guy at a urinal and you stand right next to the urinal where he is. I mean, there's, you, it's not against the law, but men, do we do that? No, you just don't do it. Sorry, women, I don't have a, a good one for you. But I think, I think you kind of understand. I mean, you, this just isn't cool. You, this isn't how you roll. Um, and you can, you can, you're kind of getting the feel for who this Nabal is. His name means fool or foolish. We're already getting the sense that that's really who this is. He is sorely, and he is mean. He's, he's selfish. He's self-centered. You Notice verse 11. I had you underline those eight first-person pronouns. Why would I give any of my stuff that I've worked so hard for, for me and my men? 
to this guy that I don't even know where he's coming from. I mean, Nabal was all about Nabal. And so in, in both of these things, refusing to do what culturally he should have done and in this selfishness, we really, we really start to see that Nabal is a fool. He's foolish. And to make matters worse, he knows who David is. But what he refuses to acknowledge is what God was doing in David's life. Everybody in Israel knew why David was on the run. They knew that Samuel had anointed David, that he was to be the next king. They knew what David had accomplished. They had heard of the Goliath being, of Goliath being slain. They knew that David was a mighty warrior who would one day sit on the throne. Everybody in Israel knew that. And they knew that's because God's finger was on him. But Nabal refused to acknowledge that. And that's what makes a person ultimately foolish when we ignore the reality of what God is doing in us and around us. That's the greatest kind of foolishness there is. Back to the text, verse 12. So uh, David's men have been told, no, get out of here, we're not helping you. Uh, verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. So David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. At which point, I'd, I'd be curious, as you hear the story, like, where are you at right now? Are you like, yeah, David, you take those 400 men, and you go give him what he deserves. Or are you like, well, maybe a little self-control would be in line here, David. I kind of feel for David. Self-control, like every virtue, is like a muscle. You gain more self-control by demonstrating self-control. That's how muscles work. You, you build muscle by, you know, by, by working them out, by pushing them harder than they can. Um, but also, with every virtue, you can use it so much that you become fatigued or, or weary. It's kind of like dieting. Okay, um, one way to diet is to watch what you eat six days a week and then to have a cheat day where you can just like go crazy and you can have the extra serving of chocolate or the extra dessert and then back on it the next day for six days. It's, it's this idea that sometimes our muscles just need a rest. We can, they can get fatigued and, and then they wear out and they're no good. I think David here, his self-control muscle is weak. I mean, think about it. The story began with Samuel, the man who, the only man who at this point still believed in David to be king. The story started with him dying. They, we buried Samuel just a few verses back. David's going, I'm running for my life from the current king. I refuse to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed, but no one will honor me for that. Even my, even my mighty men mock me for that. The one guy who believed in me, who would remind me of God's promise, is dead. And now I've got this character who refuses to help my men out, even though we deserve it. I mean, I get it. David is tired. He's, he's hurt. He's, he's worn out. And he does what we tend to do when we're in the same condition. He slips into the, the pyrite rule. He's going to do unto Nabal what Nabal has done unto him. 
He, uh, he's living proof of a truism that we know today. Matter of fact, just finish it for me. Hurting people hurt people. We get that today. David is living proof. When you're hunted, when you're a hunted person, eventually you're going to start hunting people. When you're constantly being hurt, eventually you're going to start hurting others. This is kind of our tendency. So don't be too hard on David. Verse 14, meanwhile, back, on, back in Carmel, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over, Abigail, and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. And they had no idea that David had strapped up 400 men and was coming to bring disaster. He is such a wicked man. Nabal is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. This is just interesting. This one's for free today. Um, This little speech here that the servants gave to Abigail in Hebrew is 58 words, 56 words, excuse me, 56 words long in Hebrew. Exactly half of them, 28, are extolling David and how good he was and how good his men were. Just fascinating. Verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five says of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And all God's people said, ugh, we're full. She loaded them on donkeys. This is a ton of food. Okay, but get this. When you're talking about 600 men, remember 400 coming up with David and 200 back with the supplies, plus any others that they had picked up on their journeys, any, any wives or children or any other kind of rogue members who were with David's entourage, this really isn't a ton of food. What she's offering is a token of appreciation. It'll probably feed them for a meal or maybe a little bit more, but it's not a ton, okay? But it's all that David had asked for. Verse 19, then she told her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless Okay, catch what David's doing here, verse 21. David had just said, probably to himself, to his men, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. You can almost almost feel the tension. Matter of fact, you could probably put yourself on David's donkey and say, I've been there. I've done this. David is doing what we all do when we've been hurt or when, we, when we've been offended. He's, he's rehashing it over and over. You can just hear the, the muttering and the, the backbiting and the anger, the, the snarling as these 401 men move towards Carmel. All this time was wasted, all this energy for nothing. What in the world? And, and not only is he like rehashing it over and over, but but he's magnifying it. He's making it something he's, that it's not. And, 
and, and if we're to be honest, if I'm to be honest, I do this too. Notice how David did it in verse, the second half of verse 21. He said, he has paid me back evil for good. Well, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, David. I mean, yes, it would have been good for him to pay you, but he hasn't actually done you any harm. He didn't actually take any action against you. He didn't call the FBI on you. He didn't kill one of your men. Yeah, he, he was a little foolish, and he could have been generous, but he didn't repay you evil for your good. And we do the same thing. We, we build it up. We make it something it wasn't. By the time we've rehashed it over and over and over, we're Superman and they're scum. That's exactly what he's doing. And then, and then well, he's already, he's in the process of carrying out a rash decision that doesn't fit the crime. Nabal just said, no, no support for you. Go away. And, and David's going to go kill Nabal and every man under his oversight? Verse 22, may God deal with David. This is David speaking. He's taking an oath. And if he doesn't carry out this oath, his life, he has to take his own life if he doesn't carry out the loaf. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. I mean, David has blown this thing way out of proportion. Too bad he's not as holy as we are. I mean, this could have been a whole different story if David were, well, maybe not. Nabal is the character whose name means fool, and he's the one who's been foolish. Right now, there's two people on the foolish trail. David is becoming a fool. He's going to get even, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But, you know, I don't think it's just about what Nabal has done to David. As a matter of fact, this, this punishment doesn't fit the crime. I think there's something else going on here. In this whole little speech here in verses 21 and 22, you notice David never mentioned Nabal's name. Do you see it? Do you see Nabal's name anywhere in there? You want to know why not? Because David's not going to kill Nabal and his men. Well, I mean, that's who he's going to kill, but... When, when David pictures Nabal in his mind's eye, he sees Saul's face. I think David is so fed up with Saul and the evil that Saul is doing to him that he's going to pay it forward. He's going to take all of his anger and hurt and frustration caused by Saul, he's going to take it all out on Nabal. He's going to get even, but not with, not with the right person. He's going to do unto someone else what's been done unto him. That is foolish. Thankfully, not all three characters were fools. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at, her, at his feet and said, before we go any further, pay attention to these verses. This is the longest speech in the Hebrew Bible given by a woman. Okay, this is significant. God would draw our attention and say, listen to this woman. She's intelligent and wise, and she brings me great joy. Abigail fell at David's feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. 
He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. It's like she does this little Jedi mind trick, like you're not going to do what you came to do. And we kind of get this sense like this is really intense. Like she is nailing this here. This is the perfect speech. Like she's breaking through. And, and it's, it's like you can, almost, you can almost hear like a little as the air just kind of squeaks out of this tension balloon. But it's not completely deflated yet. So Abigail continues. And watch what she does here. She's going to move this from being about David and Nabal to this being about God and David. And as she gives the last part of her speech here, I believe we can hear what God would say to us when we're red-faced and mad and hurting and ready to take an eye for an eye. We're ready to get even. I believe if we listen, this is what God says to us like he did to David through Abigail. First of all, I have a plan for you. Notice what she says in verse 28. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battle. She reminds David that there's something greater going on here than, than what this fool has done to you. And that's God's plan for you. And he has a plan for you. And friends, when you're mad and angry and hurt and you see that person walking down the hall again and grousing and looking the other way and all you want to do is give them a piece of your mind, let the Holy Spirit remind you, God has a plan for you and it's bigger than this. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know if, if the hurt that you're nursing, I don't know if it was part of God's plan because he knew that, that you'd have to work through that to cultivate something that you'd need to accomplish his plan for you. I don't know if, if that was part of God's plan or if that kind of happened outside of God's plan. And, and that's not what he wanted to happen. That, that wasn't part of his character development for you, his skill development in your life. But you can be sure of this. Nothing has happened in your life. No wounds that you nurse now, no hurt has happened that God can't and won't redeem and use as part of his plan for your life. We worship a sovereign God. When God wants to accomplish something, he accomplishes it. And what someone else has done in your life is not going to stand in the way of what God wants to accomplish in you and through you. God has a plan for you. Don't be a fool and cast it all aside by trying to get even. She reminds David God has a plan for you and, and, uh, and, and, and also that God is making him good. Again, verse 28, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as as you live. She also reminds David that God values him. Verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And she uses a word picture here. She says, David, you're like a precious jewel. Or let's say it like this, David, you're like a hundred dollar bill that, that God has folded up like four times and he stuck it in his wallet 
behind the pictures, behind the driver's license, tucked it way down there so no one will even know it's there. So it's safe. So if a thief does get his wallet, you're secure. You're not going anywhere. God is protecting you. God values you, and he's protecting you. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. What does that remind you of? What do you why do you think she said that to David? The lives of your enemies he will hurl away like a pocket from a sling. This is an intelligent woman, isn't she? She's going, David, remember Goliath? You couldn't do that. God took care of that. God's protecting you. Let God deal with Nabal too. And then she closes this speech with a question. It's not actually worded as a question, but as we read these last couple verses, you get the sense that she is saying to David, what story, David, do you want to tell when this is only a story that you tell? Listen to what she says. Verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. David, when you're sitting on the throne, what do you want to tell people? What do you want to tell them happened with Nabal? When this is only a story you tell, what story do you want to tell? One that makes you look like a fool, a blood-hungry revenge freak, or one that points back to the reality of God in your life, that he has a plan for you, that he values you, that he's protecting you, that he's making you good. David heard her. He got it. Listen to what he did. He gave her a triple blessing. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. As a matter of fact, underline these, circle them in your text if you've got it open. A triple blessing, incredible. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. Blessed be your good judgment, and blessed be you yourself for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. So we've got three characters. We've got the fool. His name is Nabal. He returns good with evil. We've got the everyman, kind of who we are. This is where we find ourselves in the story. His name is David, and he almost repaid evil with evil. And then we've got the hero, and her name is Abigail, and she repays evil with good. She's incredible. She's intelligent. She's wise. It's an amazing approach, amazing response. It's, it's almost like as we look at Abigail, she's ahead of her time. See, they lived in a culture where eye for eye, tooth for tooth was how it worked. That's how you do things. And still to this day in the Middle East, that's how you do things. Someone attacks you, you attack them harder. And you keep going for honor and, and all that nonsense. 
But it's like Abigail lives in a different time. She lives under uh, a different covenant. She's a, she's a new covenant woman. Let me show you what I mean. Here's what Peter, a follower of Jesus, said in 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter reminds us, we don't counter evil by going neutral. We don't disengage. That's not how you deal the right way with evil. You deal with evil by repaying it with good. Because to this you were called. Listen, when you decided to receive the forgiveness that God offers and decided to follow Jesus, you were called into a life like Jesus. The pinnacle of Jesus' life was that evil men crucified him, even though he didn't deserve it. Pilate knew that Jesus didn't deserve it, and he still condemned him to death. This is the man we follow. If this is what we're called to, how can we ever think that we have a right to get even? Peter says, repay evil, not with evil, but with good, because this is what Jesus did, and this is the man you follow. This is the life you were called to live. And as he continues here, Peter quotes David, like David's reflection, um, his journal, Psalm 34, where these verses come from. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Listen, refusing to repay evil with evil might be the most Christ-like thing we ever do. Refusing to get even with that jerk. All you were doing was trying to be nice and take interest in their life. And they were rude. Well, if you sink to their level, you're no better than they are. But if you return that rudeness with kindness, that's the most Christ-like that you'll ever be. So as we wrap up today, let me ask you three questions. First of all, do I really want to get even with someone I don't even like? Do I really want to be like this person? Even is easy. Anyone can get even. Even the pagans do that, as Jesus said over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. Why not be better? Instead of getting even, why not get ahead? Question number two, what story do you want to tell when this is nothing but a story that you tell? When you're looking back in 10 years, when your grandkids are sitting on your knee and you're telling them the story of your, your high school rival, what kind of story do you want to tell? One that makes you look like you had no self-control and were the fool? Or one who got ahead? Question three, what would it look like to repay evil with good? What would it look like in your situation, in the person that you're angry with, that you've been hurt by, what would it look like to repay evil with good? Listen, we live in a culture where compassion and humanitarianism, everyone's doing that. I mean, it is cool these days to be kind to people to do acts of kindness. You don't even have to be a Christian to do this. Everyone's doing this. What's countercultural, though, is to repay evil with good. What's countercultural is to bless someone when they curse you. And so what does that look like? 
What would that look like for you to bless someone who has cursed you, to, to offer an olive branch to someone who has offered you a fist? Don't settle for even. Even is easy. Be like your Father in heaven. Show grace. Not mercy. I mean, mercy is good. Mercy is divine. That's when you don't punch them in the face even though they deserve it. That's mercy. That's good. That's a good step. But extend them more kindness. Show them grace because that's what your Father did for you in Jesus Christ. We're going to close in prayer. And for our closing prayer today, I'd like for us to say this together. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to put it on the screen. Um, we're going to pray this together. This will be our closing prayer, and then I'll do the blessing. But this prayer is a little different, I know, maybe a little hokey, a little corny, but you'll remember it, and I'll, hopefully it'll make a difference. So this closing prayer has motions we're going to do. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to talk through it once, and then we're going we're gonna to read it, and hopefully you'll do the motions with me, okay? So it goes like this. First of all, we're going to make a fist, and we're going to put them up like we're ready to punch. And we say, Father, my default response to being hurt is to hurt back. And then we're going to open up our hands like we want to hug. I surrender to you my impulse to get even. Please help me to imitate your son by repaying evil with good. Will you pray that with me? Let's pray this together, Beulah. Father, my default response to being hurt is to hurt back. I surrender to you my impulse to get even. Please help me to imitate your son by repaying evil with good. Amen. Could I bless you? May you get ahead instead of getting even. May you repay evil with good. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with grace.